I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Bar and Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast with David Laser in conversation with Jennifer Byrne, recorded live at the 2019 Bar and Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Hi, um, I'm Jennifer Byrne. More importantly, um, today I'm going to be speaking with journalist and author David Laser. Um, and rather than giving a full introduction, because I, I think you all know him pretty well, um, what we're going to be talking about is women, men, and the whole damn thing, um, which was which is an excellent title for an, a really remarkable and very provocative and interesting work by David. However. I think we have to start with the obvious point, and uh, would have occurred to think really every woman in this room, I suspect, which is we probably all remember, not in the same way of 9/11 perhaps, but but the, when the news got out in October 2017 that a group of women had been signed by had signed up had been named in the New York Times and the New Yorker, and they were raising allegations of sexual impropriety, abuse. Uh, by Harvey Weinstein. Do we all remember that moment? And it seemed a remarkable thing. And I, 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 I remember Minnie Driver saying about two months later, and I don't know about you, but in our household we talked about it all the time. We're all used to the idea of Me Too now, but we weren't then. It was like, what? What's happened? Is the world ch- you know, Are we actually changing for, for women? And um, Minnie Driver said um, she ticked off her ex-boyfriend, Matt Damon, do you remember that? And she said, let women do the speaking. Now is the time. Now is their time. Um, and for men, you should just sit down and listen and not have an opinion about this for once. For once. <laughs> um, and, and David, very wisely, because he would be more aware of this than anyone, uh, in his preface to the book, quotes his beautiful daughter, Hannah, who said just the very simple thing, Dad, we don't want to hear from you right now. So, my first question to my very uh, admired friend is, what gave you the right, and you might even say the privilege, to think that you should speak for women? That I should speak for... That you should, that your voice should be heard in this, when women themselves were saying they don't want to hear from men. Um... (laughs) You you knew I was going to ask this, David. When you frame it like that... Look, men are the ones who are perpetrating the violence. There's 1.2 billion women on the planet who have been raped or sexually assaulted in their life. That's one-seventh of the planet's population. In Australia, 1.2 million women will be raped or sexually assaulted by from the time they're 15. Who's doing that? It's men. So men need to look at what the models of manhood and the definitions of masculinity are that's creating this violence. And I'm not trying to speak for women because, as you infer, men have been telling women what to think and feel for centuries. I'm trying to understand what it is in the ways in which men have been acculturated and socialised to think that this is okay. To think that they can, you know, how is it that they're severed from their hearts to such an extent that they can do this to someone that they purport to love in many cases? 
So, of course, this is a woman's movement. It started as a woman's movement. It started with millions of women around the world bearing witness and, and giving their testimony to, to what had happened to them. You've been stalked. You've been shamed. You've been violated. Me too. And I heard that and I just thought, oh, my God, I've been asleep for most of my life. So you were genuinely shocked. I was shocked. I, I, I had – I mean, I knew – you know, the domestic violence figures. I knew that we had a pandemic of domestic violence. And I knew that one woman a week in Australia was killed by her partner or ex-partner. I mean, but I didn't know how normalised... Mm. You don't know what you don't know. I had lived a privileged, white, middle-class, male life all my life. And the more you're privileged, the less you often see your privileges... And the Me Too movement, as I said yesterday, it was a bomb off, went off in my head. Mm. And I thought I wanted to understand this. Can I ask why you think it is that it was only, I think, nine months or so earlier, which you talk about in the, in the book, that the Trump, the, the horrors of Trump and the grabbing of the pussy and that, you know, that disgusting, uh, and, and when 19 women... 19 women got up and gave testimony that they had been either you know, had been aggressed upon one way or other either verbally or physically and usually physically groped etc but really it made not one jot of difference to the election and to the success of Donald Trump's presidency in the quarters regarded as a success so what happened do you think in those 9 months or so why was Harvey Weinstein a call to action, and people did, it, it ignited, but not Trump. Well, it's, it's never one thing, of course. It's multifactorial. Um, but I think there was so much rage um, around the fact that a self-declared pussy-grabber, misogynist, um, mob, mobster figure um, had ascended to the most powerful position in the country. And... You know, the Women's March, millions of women around the world responded with uh, rage and distress at the election of Trump. And, and the Trump story is the most sordid tale of sexual predation in America alongside Harvey Weinstein. It just so happens he's the president. So, but the reason that Trump was, uh, became president is, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, there's Russian interference... There's the disenfranchisement and estrangement from the body politic of millions of Americans who feel like they've been counted out of the spoils of globalism. There's the fact that working, uh, white working class women chose to vote for a misogynist and they made a choice around who might best, I think, who might best look after the interests of their out-of-work husbands. Husband. Um, I mean, there's many economic, social, political factors um, but and, and and America, like the world, is a deeply polarized place, and so the, the things that we hold dear, like equ uh, equality, gender equality, the plurality of voices, um, the Western liberal democratic ideal that we've inherited since World War II, all of that is under threat, and of course, social media is the delivery system and the amplification for the division. Um, so there's many factors, but I think that women were enraged by the uh, mm. by the election of, of Trump, and and so then 
what kicked in was great investigative journalism, the kind of journalism that we didn't see from the Daily Telegraph, um, where, where Ronan Farrow at the New Yorker and Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor at the New York Times spent months and months and months talking to these women and offering up the duty of care that any journalist should have for their subject, protecting their sources, um, and reinforcing the testimony with other testimony, and producing scintillating uh, investigative journalism. This, this is what mm. the, the best investigative journalism is. And it came out of the election of Trump. I think the two are, you know... You, uh, That's what I wondered. I mean, they, that in fact, it was almost like one set up the stepping stone and the other one set the fire, that they actually belong to the same misogynistic practices. Yeah, and, I mean, the whole thing of all the skyscrapers, all the skyscrapers of celebrity that have fallen mm. since the Weinstein case. I mean, yeah, so yeah. many men that we, yeah. We, well, we thought were decent people. Well, even, you know, my Buddhist, oh. my Buddhist teacher, Sogya Rinpoche, the author of the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, I mean, he'd been, he'd been a sexual predator on his students uh, for 20 years. And I'd been to his meditation retreats and uh, ended up writing a story about what he'd done to his students. I mean, this is a, 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 a spiritual teacher, yeah. let alone uh, all the people who are in, in our kind of collective consciousness. You and know. In fact, some people that you quote in the book, which you're then ha you have to say, well, then what happened after this interview is this person was accused. It is yeah. pervasive. And I want this is a sort of sideways question, but we will go forward. But I just, you talk about the rage that rose from the women's movement, indeed it did. You're talking about the rage of the misogynistic male. Um, in fact, there's a lovely line you, you describe as the, the modern expression of an ancient rage is this misogyny. Uh, how, how... No, the response to the misogyny, misogyny is, the, is the modern expression of an ancient rage, rage that women have always had. So right. my question is, what was it like for you setting out on that... I mean, whether you a man should or shouldn't, we've got to talk about it, but it's trivial. In the end, you've got to do the work you, that you want to do. But what was it like to set into such an enraged, turbulent and in lots of ways emotionally distressing uh, environment? Did Look, you ever lose faith that it was worth the pain? There were actually a number of times where I wept at my desk um, and I thought, I can't, I can't do this, I can't. Uh, I can't uh, wrap my arms around so much pain um, and I can't do justice to this, I mean, the enormity of this subject. And um, because one of the things was, well, well, I mean, it's not just who am I as a man, but who am I to actually try and come to grips with something so deeply felt by all of us. Um, and as I say in the book that, Every single person in this marquee, every single person that we know has a view on what the Me Too movement means because every single person here has suffered loss or rejection or shame or been abandoned or been violated or abused. And so this moment in time speaks to everyone in a deeply, deeply personal way. Um, how can I do justice to that? But as a journalist, I mean, I've covered big stories over 40 years and 
this is one of the biggest stories mm. I've ever covered. And it, it seemed to me that the thing to do was to do what my younger daughter Hannah told me to do right at the beginning, shut up and listen. And don't just listen to women, stand beside women, stand behind women, bear witness to women. And that's what I did. And, and you know, that takes you into the, the ancient pain of, of women and, and the, um, the, the attack on the feminine by a hyper-masculine culture that has dominated the world for centuries. And so I just, step by step, I mean, as Helen Garner advised me, she said, you know, I said, how the fuck am I going to do this book, Helen? And she said, just step by step, just walk towards the mountain. Um, and then she quoted Homer, you know, and then, and then it, something, you know, I, well, that's great. Um, that's going to really help. <laughs> Thanks, Helen. Uh, thank you for that Homeric moment, but um, um, just step by step. And so that's what I did. And I threw the net out and I, I talked to as many people as I could and I traveled, I traveled the world and I went to the Middle East and India and Europe and North America and I spoke to my friends and I spoke to my daughters and I spoke to my colleagues. I read 80 to 90 books um, and it was all within an eight-month white-knuckle ride. Right? What's the single, the single most shocking moment for you? When you, it was something you read, something you heard, something you saw? I, there's just, you know, it's like saying, what's your favourite album? Or, um, but you can tell that. We're just not asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, the White Album. Yeah, I knew you could tell me that. So, so don't go all, it's like asking me. <laughs> Answer the question. <laughs> so, um, look, there's a few, but one was a woman who wrote to me from somewhere in Australia. And this actually helped give me the courage to, I showed you this uh, yeah. this letter that came to me after the Good Weekend cover story. Um, and she wrote to me and she, she just went through the litany of things that she was called by her husband every day. You slut, you pig, you cunt, you whore, you bitch. And he would demean her and... I want to read it. I hadn't actually planned, but it's there because I've... And there's some the, of it. The proof. Yeah. Um, and then she said to me, I have never... Yeah. She, she said, I woke up this morning on the couch because my husband verbally abused me again last night and the idea of sharing a bed with that pig makes me physically sick. I woke up feeling slightly more powerful because I got to choose where I slept. It was my silent protest. See, Frank, you can't control every part of my life. I'm not going to sleep next to you tonight. I'm on the couch. I can't say out loud that his behaviour is abusive and disgusting. He hurts me more. I have never sent back food. I have never called the manager to complain. I have never rung a radio talkback. I've never sent a letter to my local politician. I've never said no. I've never said stop. I've never said leave me alone. I've never told my husband enough. I have never said I deserve better. I always thought it was my fault. I was too fat. I was too ugly, too slow, too lazy, too dumb, not strong enough, not pretty enough. 
not good enough. But then, this morning on the couch, I read your article. It explained. I understood. I realised. It's not me. Mm. Mm. That would add strength to your arm and did. Amazing. But I guess that's what I mean about the personal... um, It's a difficult mud to wade through. It's very tricky. Well, I mean, you know, I, I choose that one, but I mean, there's a whole chapter I, I took out of the book because mm. it's, um, you know, Australian laws, as we know, defamation laws are very, very strict. But I spent an entire day with, a, with an actress who was raped by um, a director, um, monstered by her and thrown against walls. And um, I mean, she still carries the injuries 30 years later. Um, and this is before the courts in Europe at the moment. But I just thought, well, I have to take this out because he could sue under Australian law. But spending five or six hours with her, um, I mean, it's just shocking. And, and, of course, this is just everyday stuff. So what in your mind, what was the explanation for the intensity of this rage, from that kind of domestic rage to someone who would physically throw someone against a wall to, let's be honest, on the international scale, and you went to these places, you know, to the... the they don't just kill Indian women. They burn the brides. They throw poison in their face. They genitally mutilate um, women in many parts of Africa. Why the intensity of the rage and the intensity of the action? The te- intensity of the rage of men towards women? Well, because misogyny and desire sit side by side. Hatred and desire sit side by side. So that's, and, and we get that, we get that binary uh, position or that dichotomy um, from the scriptures. Um, you know, I mean, the most celebrated woman in Christendom actually is a woman who is celebrated by dint of her virginity. I mean, the very thing that is actually um, gifted a birthright to a woman, which is her sexuality, her sexual sovereignty, her sexual agency, is actually denied. Um, I mean, it's a myth. She was a peasant woman from Nazareth, Mary, and Jesus' mother, and... And this became the story of Christendom and the story of the Madonna. So you were the Madonna or the, you were the whore. You were the tainted or you were the pure. You were the cunt or the bitch or the hoe um, or you were the, um, the beauteous one, the desired one. But woe betide you if you actually turn and say, I don't want you. Then suddenly you go from being the desired one to the hated one. That has been coded into the... Um, collective consciousness from the time that you know the tablets were brought down from Mount Sinai, and we were given the, the you know the the Old Testament. Um, what does it say? And I mentioned this a bit yesterday, and I won't go into it. But I mean, you know, Deuteronomy says uh, that a woman, a girl, a boy from the age of zero to five is worth five shekels. Uh, a girl is worth three shekels. You know, that's the first pay gap there, right? <laughs> um, and that, that a, 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 a girl, a woman who is a, who's not, found not to be a virgin on her wedding night should be taken to her father's door and stoned to death. 
Now, what, what the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Quran had to say about women and women's place in the world is something that we still carry in the water supply. Mm. We've drunk from it. And we think we have this modern conceit that we're somehow free-formed and, and what, who we are has nothing to do with our history. We are a result of the history and, and the virus of prejudice that um, has propagated itself over centuries. So but men have deeply, deeply, not all men, not you, not me, we can say that, you know, that not the good men, but I think that's a cop-out. Actually, it, systemically, misogyny sits very, very uh, deeply in, in, our, in our thinking. And, uh, and it's actually not so much hatred for women alongside desire for women. It's a desecration of the feminine. It's a devaluation of the so-called feminine qualities of tenderness and vulnerability and insecurity. And as a boy, you get taught this very early. You get taught to shut down those parts of yourself because that you need to be a man. Um, and, and boys don't cry. And boys suck it up. And boys aren't sissies. And what's the worst thing you could ever tell a boy growing up is that he's a girl. Mm. And what does that say about our view of girls? That that would be the worst thing a boy could be told. And this paralyzes boys in, in, and, and young men in their emotional repertoire. The full range of emotions that are available to every child get slowly but surely, inexorably, uh, removed or repressed. So if you remove or repress those emotions internally, if you do damage to those qualities that I will call more feminine qualities of tenderness and vulnerability, and, and we have all, all of us have a combination of the two. We have the analytical, rational thinking, and we have the emotional, tender, vulnerable parts of ourselves. But if you're told from an early age as a boy that the tender, vulnerable, emotional parts of you are unmanly, and then in order to become a man, you need to suck it up and not show your emotions, then when life becomes difficult and things get messy, um, then and, the, and you have no language to express it, the only way you can express your emotions is through that narrow keyhole of sex or through rage. Millions of British men, you know, they were just silent as stones and they burnt out in in angry in angry fits when when they got emotional that was the only indication of an emotional life often to millions of their children so that's i think the root cause of um of the damage that men end up doing to women and then themselves and i know this is an incredibly um childish expression of emotion and I don't doubt what you said, and I think actually that is probably the greatest, personally, as a reader, I thought that was the greatest contribution. I mean, I think that's a really big contribution you make when you go through, and there's quite a big section of the book and very much a theme of the book, which is that the, the suffocating nature of masculinity, which simply takes away from men. It's not just about cruelty. The only thing that troubles me, and I know it's this very, um, it's very childish, but is... I absolutely accept that 
men have suffered from this completely binary and the inheritance from the ancient texts, and that is all true. So they are in some sense victims as well. Mm. Um, but I, I can't help keep coming back to, yes, they are victims, but the fact is if they didn't carry the power maybe they would have done something about it before now. But, but it is also gratifying that the wages of masculinity are power and privilege. Mm. Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's, there's, we've got to make a distinction here between excusing the behaviour as opposed to understanding where it comes from. I don't excuse uh, the way in which men lord it over their employees or their their wives or their children or um, the you know the that sense of entitlement and power and privilege is is what angry the angry white man personified most uh, extraordinarily um, and uh, hideously by the great patriarch in the White House. I mean, he represents, he's the apotheosis mm. of the angry white man. He lined up his family when he went and was, uh, got the presidency. Yeah. And he just shook hands. He was the Don. He was the Italian Don. He's he was the, the master. master of his domain. That's right. But So he, he represents, you know, the, the, the angry white man. And um, I said this yesterday, as Gloria Steinem said, you know, the, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. Mm. So, so men will be mm. those men who cannot accept that women are rising in their millions all across the world. That 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 to be um, that feminism, what feminism means, is to be equal, and that gender equality is actually a triumph for both sexes. And you can't have the achievements of one without the achievements of the other. There will be resistance to this, but I, my my interest is in trying to. Um, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like you can only have compassion for what women have experienced. And, and my, chiefly my concern, my first order, second order, third order issue in this book is as a man to listen and learn and understand what men have done to women. But that doesn't mean I'm not compassionate and sympathetic to all the broken men who go and top themselves in epidemic proportions because they're suffering, because they have no way of accessing um, their emotions and because the culture has created that. So I want to look at it systemically. You know, I want this to be part of the education system that we actually talk to children, teach children from the age of three mm. around these things of empathy and what have you. So, Well, if we're looking at things systemically, I'd like to just line up um, gender and power. Because what, just as a, as, a, as a thought, which I'd like your response to, it seems to me in some ways that though this is a book about gender and, of course, the Me Too movement is, is, is driven, the core element is gender, the power is, is, is curious because you reference, for example, in, when you go and you talk, um, to Tina Brown, very you know, celebrated editor of Vanity Fair, leading figure in uh, American journalism. And she is among, I would say, many of my generation. Um, Tracy would know about it, Tracy Spicer. We've all been not just hit on, but seriously hit on by Ben. Trina Brown was saying, but none of us stood up. 
because for a woman also, the cost of, of losing power is to play the gender card. So is it is that where does that fit in your analysis, the actual existence of the power because to step up on gender is to actually defy the power structure also and that's disadvantageous to women also? Well, I, I think this is where um, the legal system has failed us. I mean, the whole thing about the power of the white man particularly to be believed over the testimony of the woman, we saw it with the Brett Kavanaugh US Supreme Court hearings and Dr Christine Blasey Ford giving compelling testimony. Um, and once again, we have an example of a man being believed by mainly men over the testimony of a woman. Similarly, with the Jeffrey Rush case um, and... With the John Jarrett case. The John Jarrett case. Yeah. I mean, and so the power, male power is still asserting itself, exerting itself in all sorts of ways. But, and that's why I think it's, social media has become a way of addressing the fact that women, the double jeopardy of the legal system, you get raped, you get violated, you, if you decide to go through the legal system, which many women don't, uh, then you get shamed and violated all over again in the legal process. Um, understandably, a lot of women mm. decline to do that. So social media is like, okay, th this happened to me too, and 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 that's the that's the current and the currency of social media. It trips the wire. It's not like the old days of journalism. You and I working for newspapers, where the it was owned by the privileged few. Now everybody owns. Uh, this is the democratization of information, and if if you don't have strict defamation laws like you do here, mm. uh, but you have them in America, you can name and shame, and you do name and shame. And that has its own implications in, t in terms of uh, legal process. But I, I think that men it's are on... freed people to speak. Mm -hmm. it's, it's freed, freed people to, to speak. speak. And, and women are being, I think, believed, as they should be, um, because this has been happening forever. And I think that... Um, uh, that's why I think this is an electric, exciting moment. Yes, it's baffling and it's confusing for men. How do we behave? What are the rules of courtship? All the things I told my daughter at the beginning of me, me doing uh, this book and she just said, shut up and listen, Dad. Um, you know, yes, all these things are, uh, are are confusing, but it is a great moment in time that where where women can actually stand up and say, you know, enough is enough. And perhaps... Your generation, my generation of feminists, you know, they they took on. Uh, I mean, the second wave uh, of feminism was, you know, powerful and different to the first wave of pe feminism. The third and fourth waves of feminism are different again. Yeah. And what the millennials are saying, what my daughter's generation, daughter's generation are saying, is, you know what, enough is enough. I'm not going to cop this. I must say, and I, I think there'd be, be many um, women in this room who would who, who will feel the same when you read it. That it does, you look to your own actions because the the feminists of our era, we learned to. And that's why I was so fascinated by Tina Brown because she was just saying publicly what we all know. And I, I, I was reminded that I remember when I was about 19 in Fleet Street and going into get a job, 
and I'd been recommended. Um, and so I was meant to be being looked after. I was still a cadet at the age at the time. And the man who then ran, um, I think it was the Daily Mail, but I, I shouldn't name him, obviously, but he actually, he unbuttoned his fly. He pointed, he put his legs, he sat in his chair, he put his legs up on his desk, and he said, so how much do you want this job? And I just, but the thing is, I just roared with laughter. <laughs> and just, not that much. <laughs> but the thing is, it isn't funny, and I have always, but it was only when Tracy Spicer started her campaign, and I remember talking to Tracy and saying, why can't these women just toughen up, you know? And she said, why should they have to? Mm. And reading your book, I feel, you know, for all the people like me who knew about Don Burke at Channel 9, mm. they weren't going to do it to us, but we knew. Did we help the women? No, we didn't help mm. the women. Mm. And I actually hope that's one of the things that comes out of this book, to remind women that being tough, just like a man, is actually not the kind way to go and it's been, it's been socialised into you as much as anything as it has to men. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Uh, but the thing I would add to that is, I mean, you started work as a journalist when you were 16, you know, remarkably young and, and, and it was a, a pretty male-dominated newsroom. Um, and because you became a journalist so young, you found your voice um, it, and so much so that at, at the age of 19 you could laugh in the face of this ridiculous parody of a man. It was. Um, but a lot of women don't find their voice, a lot of people don't find their voice until they've lived their lives a little bit more. So there will be some women who will be able to say, you know, no, I don't want this, this is unacceptable, go home or get off me or fuck off or whatever it is. But there will be other women who will be in the thrall of that man's power or they will need the job or they will they will not be able to find the internal fortitude or the language to express what they need to express. But they will know that it's wrong and they'll be complicit in something um, against their wishes. So each person is different about when they find their voice and how they find their voice. I'm glad you found your voice. And, yes, um, but I think that the next generation, the Hannah and Jordan and, and, and the, the generation, half generation really, beneath the generation beneath us, I think they will be stronger and they will be braver and they will insist on their rights. And I hope they do. I really hope they do. But the other thing, I, I mean, I really I, I hope that this, the, the largest intention, the biggest intention in this book, the, uh, the central hope that is embedded in this book is that, um, boys will learn about um, where this attitude towards women comes, comes from. from. I mean, I spent 12 years in Byron Bay with my daughters. You know, I love this place. It's, it's a soul home. It's the countercultural capital of Australia. Um, and we came for a year and, and we stayed for 12. And we built a house here and my daughters went to school here. In the course of doing the research for this book, both my girls told me of parties that happened in Byron as a matter of course, where if a girl got drunk, guys would piss on them. Mm. When they were passed out on the grass, they would piss on them. Sometimes they would fill up a, a, a glass of piss and pour it on them. 
and there's a friend of theirs who's making a documentary. Fancy. Um, related to this. But it was, you know, it's like, it's like surfers up and down the coast. This is my wave. This is my territory. This is my woman. Mm. Right? Mm. And it's like, where does this come from? And that's what I want to look at. That's why I've written the book. And so it's not to tell, as I said before, to tell girls and women how to think. Hopefully they might learn something and, and find some of this informative. But it's, but it's to boys and men that I'm directing this, this, this book. It's a very, very fine book and uh, really provocative and interesting. But I just want to lighten the mood a little before <laughs> we break up. Because what you also do, and I think this is also what's evolving you know we are a social species things evolve movements evolve with when we touch them and um there's a there's quite early in the book a just about a two and a half pages which i read i must have read about four times um which recounts and i think it is looking at when i say the lighter side but it's it's looking at how these big issues of misogyny of power of gender are actually playing out in real life in our world when the rules rules are now quite confused, and I think a lot of us are quite confused. And and David tells this. Um, uh, can you tell it briefly? I think it's a wonderful story, and he he must I must he says in it that some people haven't uh, responded well to this. In fact, some people, women, have actually advised him not telling this story, which is of course exactly the reason I want to talk about it. So would you just give us? You a want brief, to talk about the French train? Uh, the French woman on the train. The French woman on the train. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> I'll tell it if you want to, <laughs> no, but I I'll, think it's better you do. <laughs> no, I'll tell the story. I mean, it's a train from Zurich, um, from Paris to Zurich. I'm sitting on my own. I'm minding my own business. I'm, I'm heading to Zurich uh, for some interviews. I've just the previous day done an interview with the Emmanuel Macron's uh, Minister for Gender Equality, Marlene Schiappa, and Marlene Schiappa has told me about how rife and rampant sexual aggression is on the French metro system. And I said, well, like, and I asked her, well, like, what happens on the French metro system? She said, well, men do all sorts of things to women and masturbate against women and, and we've now got fines for this. We've now got fines, fines in the street. The National Assembly introduced legislation. So we've been talking about that the previous day and I'm on the train and this woman steps onto the train and she comes up to me and she says, asks me in French, uh, do you mind if I sit next to you? And I say in the book um, that, uh, you know, she happens to be very beautiful. Extre and I, extremely is the word you extreme. use. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, um, uh, absolument, pourquoi pas? <laughs> uh, and I quickly learned that her English was much better than my French. And, um, and we sat and we talked and she was reading a, a book on Tibetan Buddhism. Okay? I've just written a story on Sogya Rinpoche on his sexual maraudings. And um, we start up a conversation about Buddhism. She works in cyber security. I actually think she's with French intelligence, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I say, and she said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Well, I'm I'm in Europe. I'm doing some research for this book. What's your book about?" I tell her what my book's about, um, and she said, "And I said, you know, interesting. I spoke to the, your minister for gender equality yesterday, and um, 
she said that there's a lot of stuff goes on on trains and she said, well, look, only last week my sister was on a train, um, you know, Paris Metro, and it was peak hour and bodies pressed up against each other and she got out of the train and she felt her back and it was just all wet. And so we were talking about that and then she told me a story about how in Papua New Guinea, um, you know, fathers in one particular tribe, fathers put a red pepper up their boys' bottoms so that they know what it feels like to be a girl. And I couldn't quite understand what she was saying and she was about to get off in Dijon. And um, so it was a big conversation. Well, as you say, was it an intellectual just or possibly even a playful flirt? It was a, how look, were you to know? Yeah, how was I to know? And so th there was a part of me that thought, because I was single at that, t at that time, right? Um, wow, I, she's really interesting and I'd, I'd like to ask her out for a drink. And extremely beautiful. And extremely beautiful. <laughs> um, um, and, and my editor uh, and my agent and my publisher, all of whom are women, uh, thought, no, no, this is just so typical of men. You know, a woman sits down next to you and, you know, you have a conversation and your automatic assumption is, you know, what's in it for me? And, and, this, and, and in a sense, this is me just being a, a less crude version of the guy on her sister's train. The other part of me was thinking, but hold on, isn't that how people come together? Isn't that how, how families and clans and lineages are formed? Because there's a flirtation, there's a meeting, people get on well and, and someone asks the other person out. And Anyway, I'm not going to tell you whether I asked her out or not. Uh, you're going to have to read the, that book. You know, I was, I, was, I was hanging in, absolutely hanging in, until you got to the argument so maybe I'm instinct to ask her out for a drink makes you cringe, but I hope men never lose the best ways of trying it on because if we do, women will never be asked out and babies will never be born. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 but, that, but then give, put, give the last line. And never mind climate change, the human race will cease to exist, so we're responsible no, for that too. <laughs> no, but there's another line. You've got the... <laughs> She got the early manuscript, right? That there is another line. No, it's here. I said, actually, scrap that last ridiculous statement. That's me being a typically defensive male thrashing around in the death throes of a fading world. Women could do the asking out, as they increasingly do and as they should. Thank you, Jennifer Byrne. Thereby, <laughs> thereby proving women are fairer. Won't you please... Uh, it's, been, it's a terrific book. I know David will be signing copies uh, and I would commend it to all people and I think he is absolutely right. Women should be doing the asking out. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronmitersfestival.com. Mm -hmm.